I'll open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 24. And initially I was um, beginning a uh, a study in the book of Genesis and we had our evangelism team meeting this week. And after we finished that conversation and as I began to mull over our conversation, I decided to delay go to Genesis. I'll talk more about that in our conference today. We want to try to pique the interest of our community, so we're going to do um, a massive reach out to our community in an attempt to hook them with Genesis and the foundational truths of creation and all the things that come a part of that. <clears throat> so I talked with Ken about this, and he agreed and was supportive in this connection that I want to make between evangelism <clears throat> and Easter and continuing the conversation that we've had over these uh, previous weeks as it relates to evangelism. We spent four weeks there. We spent two weeks looking at Easter, the grace of Easter, where we saw the state of mankind, his total sinfulness, his absolute depravity. We looked at the victory of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to take evangelism and I wanted to take Easter and I wanted to join these things together Because I really think this is what Scripture does. And here's what I would begin with is this. Without Easter, there is no need for evangelism. And without evangelism, Christians totally miss the point of Easter. We just don't seem to make the connection that we really ought to make as we look at what God's Word says as a whole, not just in slivers or in bits and pieces. So picking up on Luke 24, after his death, his burial, and the account of his resurrection, we, we learn about his traveling on the road to Emmaus, and he encounters two individuals, and these two men are distraught over the events that have taken place over this Passover weekend, one of the holy weeks of the Jewish calendar when Jews from all over the known world would travel to Jerusalem as one of the one of the required feast celebrations. And they were distraught over these events, and they're talking together, and Jesus hears, and he joins them on the walk, and they have no idea who he is, and they are explaining how distraught they are. They relay these thoughts to Jesus, explaining that they had hope that the Messiah was going to restore the kingdom, and that they even had some women who were part of their group who were at the tomb and saw that his body was not there. And they heard the angel say that he was risen. And as a summary of this, we read in Luke 24, 26, and 27, Jesus saying, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The key question there is, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Well, we can and get into great theological discussion. We can look at doctrine and biblical theology, but really to summarize it very, very simply and easily, it was God's plan of redemption to provide forgiveness and cleansing to fallen sinful man through the death of his one and only son. So without Easter, there is no cleansing, and without evangelism, mankind cannot know how to be forgiven and how to be made clean before a holy and a righteous God. So 
they continue their journey and the men invite Jesus to come and stay with them and they do so and as they are gathered together and have some food, they recognize Jesus for who He is and instantly Jesus disappears from their sight. When this happens, they immediately return back to Jerusalem. It's not known whether they were known by the disciples. It's very probable that these men were a part of the 120 that we would read about in the book of Acts. And it tells us here in Luke that this is the same day of His resurrection. It's possible they went back to Jerusalem and they stayed there for the entirety of the period leading up to Pentecost, which was 50 days after His resurrection. And so as they are recounting this experience that they had with Jesus, and they are now in Jerusalem telling the disciples, Jesus instantly appears to them. He confirms that it really is Him. He shows them His hands. He shows them His feet. He has something to eat with them. And He goes on to say here in verses 44 to 49, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now this is pretty much what he has explained to the two men on the road to Emmaus. He's repeating these things in the audience of all of the disciples and whomever else would have been with them. And then it says here in verse 45 that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This is an incredibly important verse that is often lost and overlooked in this narrative here that explains uniquely in the Gospel of Luke a connection of the events post-resurrection up into the ascension of Jesus would take place 40 days after His resurrection. So this is important, especially as they await the soon-coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit which would happen 50 days after this experience here. And it's very clear as you continue through Luke into the book of Acts that Peter has more scriptural clarity than he has ever expressed before because he, because Jesus has opened up his mind and the minds of the disciples to understand the scriptures. So I'm not sure if we're going to look at what Jesus or what Peter says in Acts chapter 1. But as we continue through this narrative here, verses 46 and 47, And he, Jesus, said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Right here in these two verses, Jesus has joined Easter and evangelism. Look at what it says here again. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and die, excuse me, suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, Easter, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Evangelism. Jesus joins these two events together very, very clearly. He suffered by dying on the cross and was raised on the third day. For what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins to those who repent. And that this message of cleansing, of forgiveness, that is appropriated through repentance by faith, 
This is to be proclaimed to all nations, starting at home of the Israelites in Jerusalem. He says emphatically in verse 48, You are witnesses of these things. The implication here is that they are to witness about what it is they have seen. Now what is very interesting here is the word witness is the Greek word martus. It is the word in our English that we'd get the word martyr from. It is a legal term and it refers to the function of testifying in a court of law. Jesus in effect says... You are going to testify about me. You are going to tell the world who I am and what I have done and how they can come to know me, how they can be cleansed and forgiven of their sin through repentance. Jesus goes on to say, concluding our passage here, verse 49, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has, Jesus has given them again this commission. Luke articulates it a little bit differently than Matthew does. Matthew says, Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, allowing with you always, even to the end of the age. And Luke says it a little bit differently here. And what Luke also includes here is this promise of the power that will give them the ability to testify about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They will not be left alone to carry out this mission that Jesus has given to them. The Holy Spirit will come with power from on high, which indicates that the power that is going to come upon them originates within God Himself from a very very throne of God, and this will give them the ability to testify about what it is they have seen. They will martus, and they in fact all but one will become martyrs in this mission of testifying about who Jesus is and what He has done. Now Luke, the author of Acts, Luke, the author of Luke, Luke also the author of of Acts, tells us something that Jesus said before his ascension that is similar to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that isn't stated here in the Gospel of Luke, and that is very simply this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Again, the joining of Easter and evangelism, they go hand in hand. Now, as we read Acts 1.8, it is very common for churches to say that this is the mission mandate of the church to go, to send missionaries, to go out into all of these places and tell people about Jesus. Well, it is, in a sense, a mission mandate, but much more than that is it is an individual Christian mandate as you go where you go to tell others about Jesus. We need not be missionaries to think about this this call 
to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. Now, if I was doing a mission presentation, I would show you an ever-increasing circle that would indicate the range of this mission mandate here within Kenneth Square, within Chester County, within the state of Pennsylvania, within the country, within the world. We're not doing a mission emphasis here. We're talking about evangelism. So repeating evangelism is telling anyone everywhere about, excuse me, telling anyone everywhere the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so what I want to do is I want to take a few moments and I want to make application of this reality and flesh it out from the book that we've been studying on Wednesdays, excuse me, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays in our care groups. And this is a nine marks study on evangelism. If you're not in a care group, this will be new information to you. If you are in a care group, I hope that it just simply accentuates what we've already heard and what we've, what we've discussed. And it helps each of us have a connection to Easter and evangelism. So in the book, the Nine Marks book on evangelism, which I still have copies of, the author provides a great explanation between three things, and he does so in defining the church. Now, if I were to simply ask you, tell me, what is the church? Well, you would throw out a lot of things. You would uh, you would identify a lot of pieces and elements of the church, and the reality is, is that some people have a faulty idea of what the church is. They would define it inaccurately. Most of us, myself included, would probably def- define it leaving some important things out. So defining the church, what the church is. Now I'm going to read to you the author's definition of what the church is, and I'm going to pop up there for you something that you can see. Is it, you can see, yeah, I think that's what you already see in there. Believers meeting regularly to be the visible gospel. That's what the church is in a very simplistic explanation. Believers meeting together to be the visible gospel. Our author says this, a gathering of born-again believers who commit to meet regularly under the authority of Scripture and leadership to worship God be a visible image of the gospel, and to give glory to God. So we could talk about the many, many facets and aspects of what that actually means. But we are the visible gospel in the messages that are preached and taught, in the songs that are sung, and in the relational interactions that take place before church and and during our intermission and perhaps after church and even in other parts of the week. We are to be a visible gospel. So every time we gather, the gospel is to be on full display. When somebody who comes into the church and has an incomplete definition of what the church is, they should see something different here. When an unbeliever comes into this church, they should see something radically different from anything they've experienced in any other community group that they have been a part of. So to be the gospel, we must be transformed by the gospel. It isn't enough to just be a part of a gospel-centered church. We ourselves must be transformed by the gospel. So that the things that we say and the things that we do and the way that we interact with one another articulates and brings clarity to 
the truth of the gospel message. That we love one another as Jesus loves us. And we strive to live our lives under the authority of Jesus as our Lord. So there's this lordship and this deity thing that must exist in our interactions with one another so that we can affirm what the gospel message is. Changed by the love of God, living my life under the lordship of Christ, and trying to express that as I relate to people who are in this building that I call the church. So to be transformed by the gospel excuse me, to be transformed by the gospel, which is God's word, is to be our supreme authority. We are to be conformed by the truth of God's word, not by what a pastor thinks or says, not by what some doctrinal statement ought to say, but by the truth of what God says. That is our supreme authority. So this is a very brief snapshot of what the church is. Our author also defines what the church does. The church meets regularly to learn God's word, to worship, to pray, to give, to practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to care for one another. So what the church does is an extension of what the church is. The church is unique in that this is where believers regularly gather together for these specific actions. You don't do this at Kiwanis or at Rotary or at the Kennett Golf and Tennis Club. It's a unique activity to the church to gather, to be under God's word, to worship, to pray, to give, etc., etc. There are many other things that the church does in order to build up the body These ministries that provide learning for age groups, men's fellowships, men's breakfasts, ladies' fellowships, ladies' gatherings, all these different things that the church can do is quite different from what the church is, but they flow out of what the church is. And then the third thing that our author does here that I think is incredibly important is defining the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. Now, did I make that up? Is, am I saying that because that sounds good? No, it's because this is what Jesus said. This is the purpose of Easter. Repeating what we looked at in verse 46 and 47, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So this reality is the most important part, and it's very easy to confuse what the church does with what the mission of the church is. Two very, very different things. If we misunderstand what the mission of the church is, by just a little bit we can end up with a very umbilical or a very inaccurate idea of what the church mission is. Our author gives us, gives us this principle. It's called the 160 rule. Now the principle is just one degree off in setting your course over 60 miles will result in you missing your destination by a full mile. Well, a full mile is close, right? Not too far away. Well, what if you travel from Philadelphia 
all the way to Los Angeles. If you're just one degree off, you will miss your destination by more than 45 miles. Well, think about it like this. If you live the Christian life with a faulty idea of what the mission of the church is, and you're off by just a degree, well, you're going to be close, but you're not going to be accurate. Well, what if you're five degrees off? What if you're 20 degrees off? You will have absolutely no idea what the mission is. It will be something completely different from what the Bible says. And what will happen is you will misunderstand the role of the individual in the church with what is the mission of the church. Let me express it a little bit like like this. It's really on display in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. In these first few books in the, in the book of Acts, the church has exploded in its numbers. 3,000 added, 1,500 added, thousands added. And so the reality is that this group of 120 in the upper room have now mushroomed out to thousands upon thousands of people. And so this little group, this little tight-knit community has now exploded into numbers that were too unmanageable. And so here's what we read in Acts chapter 6. So the twelve summoned the congregation. By this time, Judas had been replaced by Matthias. And now the twelve would represent the apostles, those who would be given the primary purpose of carrying out this mission. The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. I'm sorry, I left out the part. So there were widows who were not able to get daily rations of food. And so the people are complaining to the leadership about this problem. And so they say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and and to the ministry of the word. So the flock of people who saw that widows were not getting the daily ration of food mistook their role in the church for the role of the church. They're only a little bit off, only a single degree off. And so the purpose of the church is not to serve food daily to the widows, making sure they get their rations, even though that is a very, very good thing. The purpose of the church expressed here by the twelve is their devotion to prayer and to the word or to the preaching of the gospel message. So the mission of the church is the gospel. Something the church does is take care of the widows who need a daily ration of food. What the church does is very, very different from the mission of the church. I believe that it isn't unusual for Christians sitting in the church having a faulty idea of what their what their role in the church is, mistaking what the church can do for them as the mission of the church. Saying that another way, here I am, what are you going to do for me? Are you going to love me? Are you going to care about me? Are you going to take care of me? Are you going to visit me? Are you going to help me? Are you going to cry with me? Are you going to rejoice with me? 
Gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy. What are you going to do for me? It's called consumerism. And many, many people visit churches and they evaluate the attractiveness of that church by what you can do for me. Never giving thought to what the mission of the church is to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And what ends up happening is people sit in the church and they go, you know, you're not doing for me what I think you should do, what I want you to do. Therefore, I don't like this church. I'm going to go out there and find a church that's all about me. Well, what the church does is it meets together regularly under the authority of God's Word to learn, to pray, to sing, to give, and to take care of one another. That's what the church does. That is not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is rooted in the gospel message. What the church does on a weekly basis is supposed to support the overarching mission of the church. Our study together, our singing together, our praying together, our caring for one another is designed to equip us to leave and to be able to share the gospel outside of the church. Now, if we had a church makeup where most of the people were not saved, we would need to rethink how we make the gospel relevant to those that are here. I can say that pretty much everybody that I know of in this church is saved. They don't need to be saved. We just need to be continually transformed by the truth of the gospel message. So the mission of the church is about the gospel. It's about evangelism. It's not about taking care of you. We are supposed to do that, but that is not the chief mission of the church. So to ignore evangelism is to ignore Easter... To embrace Easter is to embrace evangelism because Jesus joined them together. So there's three types of evangelism. I kind of wanted to do this when I was doing our four-week emphasis on evangelism, so this helps me accomplish that. Three types of evangelism. There's probably more, but I'm going to simplify it this way. Three types of evangelism. The first one is stranger evangelism. Now, this can be very difficult because we don't know anything about the people that we're going to talk to. We don't know their background. We don't know how they're going to react. We don't know if they're all there. And so that can be a very, very difficult thing for us to do. But it doesn't mean that this cannot or should not be done. This can be done anywhere by anyone. It could be done on a street corner. It could be done in a Wawa. It could be done in your workplace with somebody you're just meeting. It can be done anywhere. Stranger evangelism, sharing the gospel with a person that I do not know. I would imagine that this probably makes most people pretty scared. They don't want to encounter this. They want to go knock on doors of people they don't know and get into a gospel conversation. Secondly, there is friendship evangelism. Friendship evangelism uses existing relationships with friends and acquaintances to share the gospel with them. People that you already know. People you work with. People you golf with. People that you walk with. People that you recreate with. People that you have in your home. Wherever you are known by people, friends and acquaintances, these are people that you can share the gospel with in the context of friendship evangelism. Now this can be difficult because the longer we wait 
to intentionally share the gospel with these people, the more difficult it becomes. There is a spiritual battle that will get injected into this. I haven't said anything about Jesus to them for a year. How am I going to start now? I feel really awkward about that. Well, I'll wait till they ask me a question. Well, they never ask you a question, and you never share with them. So there's a lot that goes on here. Friendship evangelism is probably the easiest way to engage in a gospel conversation. So in both of these instances, in friendship evangelism and in stranger evangelism, these next three principles apply. So... In order to engage in gospel conversations, evangelistic conversations, there's a few things we should do. Letter A, pray for awareness. Pray for awareness of the opportunity. If you never ask God to help you see the opportunity, it's going to be much, much more difficult to recognize the opportunity when God providentially puts it in your path. That long line at Walmart, which is very, very inconvenient and very, very frustrating, just might be an opportunity to ask the person in front of you, man, have you ever had to wait this long? I don't like waiting, do you? No, you know, God gives me the ability to wait. Let me tell you how. Have you ever thought about doing that? Have you prayed for the opportunity? Pray for the opportunity. Pray for awareness. Secondly, let her be. Develop spiritual conversations. You know, you can, I've, I've actually made a mental note of this, and it is incredibly rare to watch virtually any television show or any movie that doesn't have some kind of a spiritual reference to it. God or heaven or some kind of a principle. And these become opportunities to develop a spiritual conversation. If we're praying for awareness and if we're open to hearing those things, that becomes an opportunity for us to say, hey, did you hear about that? Or what do you think about that? And you begin the conversation that leads you to an evangelistic presentation. Let us see. The least difficult, the easiest of them all is very simply invite them to church. If the church is preaching and teaching the gospel, if it's singing the gospel, if it is interacting relationally in the transformed life by the gospel, then people are going to see that this is different from anything that I have ever experienced before. The easiest way we can expose people to the gospel message is very simply invite them to church. I found this statistic from George Barna, who is one of the most noteworthy religious Christian um, researchers, statistical researchers that's around. This is a little outdated. I don't know if it's been updated since I originally found this, but here's what he says. Is one of four, 25% of unchurched people would come to a worship service if they were invited by a friend or a relative. 25% of the people you know who are unchurched, would come to a church service if they were invited. That means, based upon the time that Barna wrote that, probably 10, 15 years ago, 20 million people, any at any given Sunday, 20 million people who are not ever in church would be in a church if they were invited. Statistically, 70% of people who attend the church that they are now worshiping in were invited by 
a friend. If your unsafe friend visits church with you, the opportunities to evangelize multiply very, very rapidly. So if we will simply invite or engage in the conversation, we can be doing what Easter joins us to do by the mandate of Christ, and that is evangelize the lost. Now, there's a simple plan for evangelism. I don't think this is very complex. The simple plan for evangelism is pray for boldness. Pray that God would give you the boldness from the power on high to open our mouths and to tell someone about who Jesus is. Pray for the boldness to do that. Pray for clarity in the information that you share. Pray that the person would understand what it is you're trying to communicate. Again, praying for the opportunities to do this. The great thing is you don't have to be a theologian to share the gospel. We'll talk about that more at the very, very end. Secondly, present. Present the basics. Share the basis of the gospel with family or friends or strangers in a line. Tell them about Jesus, about his sinless life, about his physical death on the cross, about the fact that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and then he ascended back into heaven, and he's coming back really soon. Are you ready? What do you mean, am I ready? Well, Jesus is going to come back, and you're going to stand before him, you're going to get a give account of your life. Really? Yeah, what are you going to say? I don't have any idea. What can I share with you? Sure. Use a tract. Memorize a few key verses. Carry a pocket New Testament with key verses written in it. Engage that individual in a conversation and say, Hey, the line's moving now. Or this is your bus stop. Here, take this with you. If you have any questions, my phone number's in here. Give me a call. It's not hard to do. But we have to pray... For the boldness, we have to present the basics. Now, as a part of presenting the basics, a little sideline here, receiving Jesus is really very simple. And a part of what we present is called the ABCs. A person needs to admit that they are a sinner. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You must believe. For You must believe that Jesus Christ died for you. Not just generically died, but He died for you to provide you with your salvation, for your salvation. Romans 5a, but God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Letter C, you must confess that Jesus is Lord. ABCs, admit, believe, confess. I heard this in, in vacation Bible schools for years and years and years. ABCs, admit, believe, confess. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not difficult, is it? Then after you have prayed for boldness and after you have presented the basics, including the ABCs, pray with the individual. Tell them how they can express their need for Christ. I am a sinner. I recognize Jesus died for me. I commit to live my life for you. Thank you for forgiving me. Amen. If they don't receive Christ, pray for them. Can I pray with you? God, help them to understand. Help them to desire to know you, etc., etc. Pray with them and then follow up. 
If they pray to receive Christ, how's it going? Are you reading your Bible? Do you want to come to a Bible study? How can I help you? If they don't pray to receive Christ, hey, I wonder if about the conversation we had a week or so ago. I wonder if you give any thought to that. Do you want to talk any more about that? Follow up. People are more interested than we think they are. And the enemy has done a very, very good job of convincing us that they don't want to know. It's just not true. Now, lastly, barriers to evangelism. Are there barriers to evangelism? Oh, you better believe they are. The first one is this. It's indifference. What is indifference? I know that person, and I know they're not saved, and I don't care that they're going to continue to live their life apart from this relationship with God. And I don't really care that they're going to go to hell. Would you ever say that? Would you ever really say, I don't care that my brother, that my friend, that my co-worker is going to go to hell? I don't think we would ever be willing to say that out loud. But indifference says, I don't care. Second barrier is feelings of inadequacy. And I believe this is where the enemy really frustrates our efforts in being faithful to share the gospel. Because we've convinced ourselves through the deceit of the enemy that we need to be able to answer all the questions, explain all of the unexplainables, deal with all of the objections, and we don't have to do that. You don't have to memorize large passages of Scripture. All you need to be able to say is very simply this. Jesus was sent to the earth by the Father. He was holy and righteous and just. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He died on the cross to take my consequence for sin. He rose from the dead to overcome the consequence of sin. And by placing your faith in the finished work of Christ and committing to live your life for Him, you can be saved. Is that something you would like to do? Any reason why you would not like to give your life to Christ? Well, you know, I got a lot of questions about that. Well, I'm sure you got a lot of questions. Everybody's got questions. But there's a reason why you wouldn't want to give your life to Christ today. Well, you know, I got all these questions I want to ask. Well, that's fine. You've got all these questions that need to be answered. You'd like to have those answered. But what happens if you die before these questions get answered? Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to risk that? Well, you know, I don't know how I'm going to. No one knows how they're going to live. The question is this Do you know Jesus? If you were to die today, what would you say? If you stood before him and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Always coming back to the main issue. Do you know Christ? Do you want to give your life to Christ? I believe with all my heart, if we will think about how to steer people back to the main thing, the objections can be dealt with. And people are going to raise objections to deflect the need to make a commitment, to make a decision. And all you have to simply say is, I can't answer that question. I'll see if I can, but here's the deal. Do you want to give your life to Christ? No, I don't want to. Well, that's too bad. Can I pray for you? You've done your part. The rest is up to God to bring about conversion. Without Easter, there is no evangelism. 
And without evangelism, we miss the point of Easter. Father, I pray that you would speak to our complacency, to our indifference, to our unwillingness. And I just pray, Father, that you would give us confidence in the power that comes from on high to open our mouths and to tell others about Jesus. If they laugh and walk away, that's okay. If they fall to their knees and cry out for forgiveness, praise God. But we'll never know until we open our mouths and trust You to speak through us, to draw others to Yourself. So Father, I pray that You would make us aware of the opportunities that are around us every single day. God, I pray that You would break us out of our our spiritual indifference, that unwillingness, that fear of ridicule or rejection, that we would just trust You to share our faith with others. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be dependent upon You. And as we do that, I know our lives will bring You greater glory than ever before. And that should be our goal. Father, thank You for this great gift of salvation You've given to us. Thank You for awakening us from our slumber and allowing us to know the truth and changing our destiny, changing our temporary life in this world through the truth of the Gospel message. We give You thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand listening to Him.